This is Yudaha Kohen of the Vision Movement, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. This week's episode will be a slightly different format from usual. I do want to speak about the presidential elections in the United States that were this week, and what meaning I think we can ascribe to it. But I'd also like to introduce listeners to another podcast I just began a couple weeks ago on the Parsha, on the weekly Torah portion. This started as something of a passion project for me, not because I'm not already extremely busy. I am. Uh, I have seven children, Blianora, who each need me to be a specific kind of father. And running Vision Magazine is really more than a full-time job. But I also feel very strongly that there is an understanding of our Torah that's completely absent from the English-speaking Jewish world. And because that approach has been so impactful for me, and because it actually does lie at the very foundation of what the Vision Movement is all about, I really don't feel myself having the option of not taking this project on. This approach to Torah that I'm trying to offer in the new podcast largely comes from the teachings of Manitou, Rav Yudah Ashkenazi. He was a close friend of Rav Tziyuda Hakoin Kuk, and the two of them shared a number of students who've gone on to have a major influence on the Israeli Torah world. This unique understanding of our Torah and the words of our sages, which simultaneously focuses on the historic mission of the Jewish people and on the personal challenges many of our ancestors and biblical heroes needed to overcome in order to play their individual roles in Israel's story, was actually taught to me by Rav Gavriel Ries, who founded the Vision Movement with us before going off to become a shepherd in southern Judea. It's really a holistic approach to Torah that I think actually resolves many of the contradictions that seem to exist in different Jewish schools of thought, uh, so definitely something I believe English-speaking Jews need to be exposed to. So after I share some thoughts about the U.S. elections, I want to play this week's episode for you. It's on Parshat Vayera and really focuses primarily on our matriarch Sarah and on her role as Avraham's primary partner. It also touches on the relationship between Yitzchak and Yishmael and how that could potentially inform Jewish-Muslim dialogue and Israel's ideal relationship with the Islamic world today. And so I hope listeners will find that valuable. I also want to ask listeners for help with naming the new podcast. Our team has thrown around some ideas like the Torah vision, decolonized Torah, secrets of the ancient Hebrews, and unmasking Torah. But none of those seem to really sit right with me. So I'd like to ask listeners to help us out. If after listening to this episode, you can think of a good name for the podcast, please get in touch. You can email us by going to visionmag.org and clicking contact on the menu bar up top. Send us your suggestion for a name, and whatever suggestion we end up using will of course give you credit on the show and send you an English copy of the book El Nakam as a token of our appreciation. For those of you who don't know, El Nakam is a book written by my good friend Ezra Yachin, who should live and be well for many, many years, Bezrat Hashem. It's his personal story of how he, as a young teenager, joined the fighters for the freedom of Israel and fought to free our country from British rule. It's a great book for both teenagers and adults and really captures the experience of Jerusalem in the 1940s. So whoever sends us the name suggestion we end up using for the podcast will get a copy of that book as a token of our thanks. I'd also like to ask, and this is really important, that if you enjoy the new podcast, and this also goes for the next stage as well, please go to iTunes or to wherever you like to listen 
and give both the new podcast from the Parsha and the next stage a really good rating and review. Just doing that can go a long way in helping us reach a larger audience. And of course, please send our content out to anyone you think would appreciate it or benefit from it. Some people really like what we at Vision have to say, and some of the people who don't like it actually really need it. I hope you've been enjoying the Next Stage podcast and benefiting from the unique perspectives we offer on Jewish identity, history, Torah, decolonization, revolutionary theory, political organizing, philosophy, Israel's complicated relationship with the U.S., our current conflict with the Palestinians, and really a whole range of issues confronting the Jewish people in this unique and tumultuous chapter of Jewish history. One of our goals for this podcast and for Vision Magazine in general is to really encourage listeners and readers to step out of your political comfort zones and to start relating to contemporary issues and current events through an understanding of Israel's ancient worldview and historic mission. This means taking time before formulating an opinion on any particular issue to ask yourself some very important questions, like what are the goals of Jewish history? What's already been achieved? What remains to be accomplished? And what obstacles stand in the way? In order to better contextualize whatever issues we're engaging within the context of Israel's broader story. So I really hope that this show has been useful in helping listeners develop a vision for what Jewish liberation can look like today. And I hope the new podcast will help supplement that by providing some insights from the parsha from the weekly Torah portion that not only bring the Hebrew mission into clearer focus, but also emphasize the struggles and deep personal growth of many of our ancestors and biblical figures. If you haven't already, please go subscribe to Vision Magazine on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and or Spotify. And again, please leave us a rating and review because that could really help us get our message out to a much wider audience. And of course, if you're interested in sponsoring an episode of either The Next Stage or The New Parsha Podcast, please reach out by contacting us through visionmag.org just by clicking contact on the menu bar up top. These podcasts do take a lot of work, and your generous partnership is greatly appreciated. Now, regarding the presidential elections in the United States, first and foremost, I have to express how disgusted and embarrassed I've been by all the zealous support and even prayer rallies for Donald Trump by nationalist Jews in places like Hebron and Jerusalem, especially given the fact that Trump actually has a plan on the table to take 70% of the West Bank away from Israel. When I see Jews who are on the surface connected to Jewish identity, to Torah, and to the land of Israel, actually expressing such support for any U.S. president, let alone one who plans to take parts of our land away from us, it just demonstrates for me the extent to which we're still psychologically subjugated to the forces of empire. Some of us like to believe that the Israelis in Tel Aviv and the diaspora are the weak Jews, while those of us holding it down in Judea and Samaria are the strong Jews. But the fact that so many Judeans aggressively campaigned for Trump and even appealed to the Kadosh Baruch Hu for a Trump victory exposes a deep inner sickness in need of desperate healing. We can look at this pathetic behavior as being a manifestation of an exile mentality or a low soul or mental colonization, but what's obvious to me is that the people of Israel, including the national camp, still need to heal and connect deeper to who we really are. I mean, if you're going to get together in Hebron or Jerusalem to 
cry out to the Kadosh Baruch Hu, why not focus your tefillot on Israel being free from the United States? Or for Israeli leaders to find the strength to stand up to the forces of empire and behave like an independent nation in our land. The fact that you're asking for Hashem to send us a good emperor who will allow us to pursue the kind of policies you want is expressive of a slave mentality that really caused me to lose a lot of respect for people I used to think actually got what this fight is all about. Just because a Jew lives in Judea or Samaria and opposes any retreat from portions of our homeland doesn't mean he's not a slave. Israel doesn't need a good emperor in Washington. Israel needs freedom. That being said, I think a strong argument can be made for Joe Biden being the president that's actually best for Israel right now. That's not any kind of endorsement. I'm actually against Jews voting in U.S. elections based on which candidate they think would be good for Israel. But in general, Israelis tend to act healthier when confronted with a hostile U.S. administration. Because the fact that our subordination to empire is a problem becomes obvious. And unfortunately, we're still clearly at the stage where even some of the most nationalist Israelis in Samaria and Judea still need to learn that. What a lot of these Jews might not appreciate is that a second-term Trump who most Israelis view as friendly, with a plan on the table to take our land, and a belief that Israel owes him something, could be really challenging for us. Biden might personally like Israel less than Trump does, but at least he has no plan ready for us. He'd likely have to start from scratch, and that could buy us time to mount an effective resistance. But just because a Biden win might at least temporarily loosen the empire's hold on Israel, that doesn't mean the rest of the world would be any freer. Just due to his own narcissism and polarizing behavior, Trump divided much of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, which in turn led to some pretty embarrassing failures, most notably the failed attempted coups in Bolivia and Venezuela. A Biden administration would likely bring Washington's foreign policy apparatus back online. One might hope, in the event that Biden does in fact become the next president of the United States, that he focuses energies on tackling climate change and the coronavirus pandemic and domestic issues of race to the extent that he simply doesn't have time right now to deal with the rest of the world. But that hope would obviously be naive, given the fact that so much of the U.S. ruling class is invested overseas and the fact that Washington can't bring itself to cede global dominance. So a retreat from the international stage to focus on the empire's many internal crises probably isn't likely until those crises intensify. In any case, the U.S. seems to be experiencing a rapid collapse. The economy's in shambles, unemployment is up, international prestige is down, the COVID-19 crisis was completely mismanaged, and the population is extremely polarized to the extent that civil war is not an unlikely scenario. Maybe the Democrats will produce some kind of New Deal policy to buy a couple more decades. Maybe the U.S. will balkanize into several different states or confederations of states. In fact, this might be a great opportunity for Israelis and Palestinians, as true friends of the United States, to suggest partition of the U.S., just as Washington has tried to impose on our country so many times. But whatever happens, it's clear that U.S. Jews should stop fighting for their candidate, especially Jews in the pro-Trump camp. Don't get sucked into the polarization and conspiracy theories. This isn't your fight. Don't be like Etzel Commander David Raziel, who gave his life on foreign soil while dressed in a foreign uniform. Be like Yair Stern and his followers, the fighters for the freedom of Israel, who remained focused under every circumstance 
on advancing Jewish liberation. U.S. Jews need to start thinking seriously about returning home to Israel, ASAP, and Israel's political leadership should be making national independence and detachment from a rapidly collapsing empire their number one priority over the next couple years. Israel urgently needs to get free, politically, economically, militarily, diplomatically, and of course, psychologically. So that's my take on the U.S. elections, a story that doesn't seem to be over. Bottom line, Israel needs freedom. And with that, I'd like to present you with a taste of my new podcast on the weekly Parsha. If you're subscribed to this podcast, you should automatically start receiving the new one as well. And please don't forget to leave a good rating and review. It really does help. And you can find the show notes for this episode at visionmag.org backslash the next stage 39. Parshat Vayera continues the story of Avraham on his journey to becoming the progenitor of the nation of Israel. But it specifically focuses on his internal struggle with limiting and refining his own attribute of chesed. Without getting too deep into this, it's helpful to understand that from a Kabbalistic perspective, there are ten sfirot, ten attributes or emanations through which the Creator reveals Himself and continuously creates both our physical world and the chain of higher metaphysical worlds. One of these sfirot is called chesed, which essentially means kindness or benevolence. It's the unbounded loving-kindness with which the Creator created the world and with which all of creation is permeated. But since Hashem's infinite and unlimited chesed is intended for finite creatures unable to absorb infinite kindness while still remaining in physical existence, the attribute of chesed is meant to be limited and controlled by the Sfira of Gvura. Gvura means restrictive power the power to limit and conceal the infinite divine light so that each creature in creation can receive that divine light according to its own capacity. Therefore, Gvura should also be understood as an aspect of divine kindness because if the outpouring of infinite chesed were to remain unrestricted, finite creatures would essentially be nullified. So the Sphira of Gvura is the manifestation of divine power to restrict and conceal Hashem's light so that His creatures can receive His chesed, His loving-kindness, according to each of our personal capacities. Now, when it comes to human beings displaying these attributes in their personalities and actions, the Sphira of Chesed manifests itself as the desires to give, to share, and to show mercy. These are obviously positive drives that benefit society, but if they were to go completely unchecked and not be restricted by any limitations, society would likely collapse. Chesed, therefore, requires some level of restriction. And this was very much Avraham's central challenge as he grew in his mission. He had to learn to limit and refine his own dominant attribute of chesed, which he ultimately did through a series of tests and his relationships with his wife Sarah and son Yitzchak, both of whom represented the attribute of Gvura. The parsha opens with three malachim, often translated into English as angels, visiting and informing Avraham that his wife Sarah will give birth to a son. Like his mother, this son, Yitzchak, will exemplify the divine emanation of Gvura, which manifests itself as strength, discipline, 
and an inclination towards strict justice, setting boundaries, self-restraint, and law in the service of preserving tradition in the social order. Both Sarah and Yitzchak, as bearers of this attribute within the structural framework of establishing the Hebrew nation, devoted themselves to maintaining, protecting, and preserving the teachings and mission of Avraham. This posed somewhat of a challenge for Avraham, and was very central to his own evolution in recognizing the value of Kavura and the need for integrating and balancing it with his chesed. At first, when they were childless, Avraham and Sarah were very successful at spreading their teachings to many followers from Babylon to Egypt. But the more Avraham internalized Hashem's message that his mission would have to be achieved not through a universal religion, but actually through a unique holy nation, the more he began to experience a crisis due to his own lack of children. Sarah resorted to extreme measures by instructing Avraham to take her servant Hagar as a wife, so that he could father children with her. From one perspective, we can see this as an act of desperation, with very serious consequences that stemmed from a lack of trust in Hashem's plan. But from another perspective, we can say that Avraham needed to father and raise a child in order to prepare himself, in order to become who he would need to be, in order to father a son with Sarah that would continue his mission. In any event, Avraham went along with Sarah's plan and fathered Yishmael with Hagar. And what we see is that Avraham felt very attached to Yishmael for two reasons. Number one, Yishmael was very much a copy of Avraham in that he also very strongly manifested the attribute of chesed. And number two, because Hagar, as a princess of Egypt, represented Egyptian civilization. Avraham saw his creating a son together with Hagar as validation for his previous mission of a universal religion. A son that's half Hebrew and half Egyptian royalty could potentially help influence the mighty Egyptian kingdom to incorporate and spread many of Avraham's spiritual teachings. Ishmael would, in fact, go on to continue Avraham's early work. His descendants will create a universal religion called Islam. And just as Ishmael is characterized by unrefined chesed, the Islamic religion will serve to restrict and balance this attribute by strongly emphasizing Gvura. The ideal relationship between the nation of Israel and the Muslim world should be established on the foundation of both parties continuing Avraham's work. Israel is meant to be the unique holy nation that expresses the divine ideal in all spheres of national existence, while Islam should serve as the Noahide religion for righteous Gentiles. This partnership should of course be the basis of any healthy Jewish-Muslim dialogue, but it requires that the Islamic world first recognize Israel for what we are. Recognizing Israel, or more specifically, recognizing Yitzchak, was something very difficult for Yishmael to do, because Yitzchak's birth created a serious crisis for him. Yishmael was 14 years old when Yitzchak was born. Until then, he was Avraham's only son and presumed heir. Once Yitzchak was born, Yishmael was displaced and his entire status changed. But despite this, Yishmael was eventually able to recognize Yitzchak once Yitzchak demonstrated that he's truly Avraham's rightful heir. In order to correct our relationship with the Islamic world today, 
Israel must first and foremost behave as Israel is meant to behave, in a way that expresses the values and worldview of our patriarch Avraham. In order to make it easier for Muslims to recognize who we truly are and what we represent. Only then can Israel achieve true peace and establish a unique partnership with our neighbors on the basis of not only our regional interests, but also a shared universal vision for humanity. In any case, Avraham had many disciples, most notably Lot, Eliezer, and Ishmael. But his primary partner was always his wife Sarah. Sarah's role is very important to their partnership because her gvura often served as a correction for Avraham's chesed. In general, Avraham strove for universality, and it was often Sarah who redirected Avraham to the specific task of creating the Hebrew nation. Sarah was the force that set boundaries and kept her husband focused on the primary objective of creating Israel. So while Avraham might have viewed nationalism as antithetical to universalism, Hashem continued to push him towards a revolutionary nationalism that aspires to universalism. Meaning that for Avraham to become truly universal, he had to first create a nation that would achieve its national potential and only then could it give what it has to offer to the rest of the world. The fact that the ideas they were spreading could best find their way to the rest of humanity through the creation of a unique people to transmit them was far easier for Sarah to appreciate than for Avraham. She understood that the foundation of universalism couldn't be cosmopolitanism, but actually the realization of one's own national fulfillment. In his commentary on Bereshit 21 verse 12, Rashi quotes our sages in the beginning of Shemot Rabbah and teaches us that Sarah had greater nivuah, a higher level of prophecy than Avraham. We also see an indication that it was Avraham and not Sarah who was the cause of their infertility because it was he who was lacking the necessary spiritual growth to produce Yitzchak. That doesn't mean Avraham was unable to father children. He was clearly able to produce a son with Hagar, which likely strengthened Sarah's feeling that she was responsible for their infertility. But just because Avraham was able to father children didn't mean he was able to produce Yitzchak. He wasn't yet ready to create with his Hebrew prophetess wife the successor who would continue building the Hebrew nation. The different levels of Avraham and Sarah also find expression in the different manner in which their names were changed at the end of Parshat Lech Lecha. We see this difference in the wording of how their names change, in Bereshit chapter 17. Verse 5 says about Avraham, And your name shall no longer be called Avram, but your name shall be Avraham. But verse 15 says about Sarah, Do not call her name Sarai, for Sarah is her name meaning that Avraham received a new name to accompany his success in overcoming certain deficiencies and attaining a new spiritual level. Now he could finally father Yitzchak. But Sarah wasn't given a new name. Rather, her true name, which had until then not been revealed, is finally being revealed to Avraham. In order to bear Yitzchak, Sarah needed Avraham to see what had been hidden inside her all along. One of the things we actually see Avraham correcting on his journey is his orientation towards Sarah, as well as his attitude towards the attribute of Gvura. Twice we see Avraham calling Sarah his sister, once in Egypt and once in Gurah. The truth is that she was his sister, or more precisely, his half-brother's daughter. And she was also his partner in his life's work. He may have seen her more as a comrade than as a wife, 
he may have seen her purpose more as helping him to educate disciples than as helping him to raise a family and produce a nation. In such a case, it might have actually felt a bit natural for him to call her his sister. But once he actually told Avimelech his rationale, once he explained it out loud, he may have been forced to internalize the fact that she really was his wife and his primary wife. This recognition for what Sarah had always been was likely a crucial point in the spiritual advancement Avraham needed in order to facilitate Yitzchak's birth. Part of what had blocked Avraham from truly seeing Sarah until then was her attribute of Gvura, which he had to learn to appreciate. Most people tend to generally see their own inclinations and their own views as the most true and beneficial for the world. This is actually natural, and to a certain extent healthy and necessary, because Hashem creates each of us a certain way for a certain purpose, and even when we're able to recognize the validity and value of opposing tendencies and ideas, it's still important that we fight for our own in order to actualize our purpose in this world. But it's dangerous for someone to become such a fanatical supporter of any idea that he believes it to be the only solution for all humanity's problems. Even when the idea is true and an important component of what's necessary to advance the world, it shouldn't be given absolute value to the exclusion of other ideas. The higher level of awareness would lead such a person to continue actively supporting that idea while at the same time allowing him to see it as only one piece of the overall puzzle. Avraham's eventual transition from total preoccupation with chesed to internalizing the importance of harmonizing chesed with gvura not only cleansed our national roots of fanaticism, but also allowed for Avraham to develop healthy relationships with Sarah and Yitzchak. In any case, when the visiting malachim informed Avraham that Sarah would give birth to a boy in a year's time, we see something very strange in the text. Sarah was listening to the conversation from the entrance of the tent. We're told that both she and Avraham were old, and that her body was no longer capable of having children. So she laughs, saying in Bereshit chapter 18 verse 12, After I have withered, shall I again have delicate skin? And my Lord is old. Then the Creator himself asks Avraham, who presumably hadn't heard her, why Sarah laughed. And then, after being called out, Sarah denies having laughed. So what's this really all about? Most people tend to interpret Sarah's words to be saying that bearing a child is impossible because she and Avraham are both too old. But this requires us to translate the Adoni Zaken as my husband is old, when the word Adoni doesn't literally mean my husband. It means my Lord. Perhaps Sarah wasn't calling Avraham old, but actually calling Hashem old. In referring to the Creator's old age, Sarah meant to say that he no longer interferes with the natural flow of events, that he created the world and set the laws of nature in motion, but doesn't get involved in such a way that breaks these laws. This is a perspective of Gvorah on its own. There are rules, and those rules must be preserved. I think this understanding actually corresponds better to Hashem's answer. Instead of addressing Avraham's purported old age, Hashem says in verse 14, Is anything too wondrous for Hashem? Also, if we understand Sarah to be speaking of Hashem's old age, her phrasing might actually become more logical. We could interpret her words as saying, I myself have already grown old, and the Creator too no longer intervenes in the world. Everything that happens now follows the immutable laws of nature, 
and therefore I shouldn't expect to give birth. This attitude actually expresses Sarah's deeper problem. Since the desire to uphold and observe laws, including the laws of nature, is a central quality of Gvura, Sarah's words were very much a deep expression of Gvura. It's important to understand that the attribute of Chesed isn't just kindness, but also a revolutionary desire to improve the world by changing the status quo. Avraham didn't just give inspirational speeches, he smashed idols. And the attribute of Gvura isn't just about justice and discipline, but also a strong desire to preserve and protect the social order. Avraham was Chesed, and Sarah, as a member of Avraham's family, was the Gvura within Chesed. When they acted in partnership against the outside world, Avraham and Sarah together did Chesed, and successfully influenced many people to embrace their Hebrew worldview of ethical panentheism. But in their internal relationship within the family, Sarah's attribute was Gvura, which made it difficult for her to accept that Hashem would alter the laws of nature for her. Not because she thought the Creator couldn't alter the laws of nature, she knew He could, but she didn't think it was necessary. Hashem called her out at this point not to take her to task, but in order to challenge her understanding of how the universe functions and to help her achieve her needed spiritual advancement through the refinement of her attribute of Gvura. The refinement of Gvura actually comes through laughter. And this is why Sarah would later name her son Yitzchak, which means he will laugh. Laughter is necessary to correct the attribute of Gvura. People of Gvura need to develop the ability to laugh at the world, to laugh at themselves, and even at the ideas and values they fight for. So Sarah's laughter, when hearing that she would bear a son, didn't actually imply a rejection of the prophecy she heard. Rather, she was sensing within herself the possibility of a spiritual breakthrough. But at the conscious level, she couldn't yet fully accept the prophecy because she knew that from a physiological perspective, she couldn't give birth. Just as Avraham's spiritual development required him to limit his attribute of chesed, Sarah's development required her to limit her attribute of kaburah. While her laughter at the prophecy might have actually been an expression of her subconscious joy, her reaction was to deny that she had laughed. Verse 15 states that she was afraid, but she probably wasn't afraid of being punished for laughing. What's more likely is that she was afraid to admit to herself that she had laughed. Afraid to admit to herself that she believed in any possibility of an illogical break in the laws of nature. She likely feared the collapse of her perception of the world and was therefore afraid to acknowledge her own laughter. From this perspective, Hashem called her out in order to help her overcome her fear of her own laughter so she could confront it and grow from it. He wanted her to accept the possibility of change so she could successfully advance. So after she denied having laughed, he said, no, you did laugh. We see this dialogue continuing when the Torah tells us of Yitzchak's birth in Bereshit chapter 21. In verse 6, Sarah said, Elohim has made laughter for me. Whoever hears will laugh for me. By this point, Sarah was able to accept the notion of miracles overcoming the laws of nature, and she was therefore no longer ashamed or afraid of having laughed. Now, if we go back to the visit of the three Malachim, there's something else worth mentioning about the event. After being informed that he and Sarah would have a son, Avraham was told that the city of Stom was about to be destroyed. 
This led to a very unusual discussion between Avraham and the Creator, in which Avraham made a passionate argument for the city to be spared, despite the fact that stone personified the antithesis of Avraham's values and teachings. Above and beyond the fact that Avraham generally championed the value of chesed, and had still not figured out how to integrate chesed with gvurah, there might be another motivation for Avraham's defense of stone, guilt. On some level, it can be argued that Avraham bore some responsibility for Stom's destruction. During his war against the four most powerful world empires, in Bereshit chapter 14, Avraham and his disciples became a recognized military power. He could have easily taken control of the country in order to establish a kingdom that would enforce his values. But he didn't, because he wasn't comfortable with using power or wielding authority. And as a result, Stom continued on its path and was ultimately destroyed. This may have been both a deep personal tragedy and a wake-up call for Avraham, leading to an appreciation for integrating Kfurah into his chesed.